This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm talking about a very, very timely topic, Anthropocene, and I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Travis Holloway. Travis Holloway is an assistant professor of philosophy at State University of New York at Farmingdale, and um, he published a book called Theory, Art, and Politics for the Anthropocene, How to Live at the End of the World. The book was published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Travis, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Morteza. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. Uh, This is a fascinating book, and it's very easy and short to read. But before talking about the book, maybe you should tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in questions of um, topics and questions of arts and climate change. Thank you. I am an assistant professor of philosophy. Uh, I'm also a translator and a poet and former fellow in creative writing at New York University. Um, I was trained in Europe as a philosopher. Uh, I worked on mostly politics, social and political philosophy and 20th century philosophy. So um, the short story is, I I guess I was not expecting to work on climate change. Um, I had no intention to speak about climate change. And then climate change interrupted all of the work that I was doing. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. So um, about five or six years ago, I began writing about climate change. Um, I I now teach a course every semester called The Politics of Climate Change. I'm guest editing a special issue of Philosophy Today on a new era of climate change. I host uh, an annual workshop um, called The Nature of Art Today um, at an art design college where we look at how nature's is, um, its depiction, its, its motifs are changing in um, very, very contemporary art. So in the last year, or the last two years, every year it seems to develop in, an, in a new way. Um, so I could say a little bit more about the book came about, but maybe I should turn it back to you. Was there anything in particular that you'd like me to speak more about? Uh, yeah, one one thing I'm really interested in is the story of this book. How how did it come about? What was the, uh, let's say, motivation or what was the trigger point that you decided to write the book? So as I mentioned, I wasn't supposed to be working on this. Uh, I wasn't supposed to be 
working on environmental philosophy or climate change. I'm trained primarily as a social and political philosopher. But my work was gradually um, interrupted by climate change. I think the moment when Bruno Latour talks about the moment when we face up um, to this kind of climate change, I think the moment for me when I really looked at it was when I was living in New York City in 2012 and Hurricane Sandy hit. Oh, New York City is not supposed to get hurricanes. Um, we're too far north uh, in um, the Atlantic. So here was this modern, you know, triumphant city and it was supposedly impervious to nature. We were, we were protected by it or walled off from, from the pastoral. And it was being intruded on by um, a kind of devastating nature, a, a new era of climate change, really. After the hurricane hit and I was living in the city, I began to notice a real shift in the conversations among artists I was working with, intellectuals, and really, I think, everyone in the city. What had been, up to that point, mostly distant scientific facts about climate change were being felt um, as lived experiences. And they were being shared in a very public, historic way. Um, so in the midst of this, I started noticing that I was seeing more and more stories related to climate change, to catastrophe, um, to the end of the world. These are all themes I suggest um, in the last decade have become ubiquitous in our culture. My friends were making this kind of art. Uh, two poets that um, are friends of mine, Alina Gregorian, Tim Donnelly, both wrote books about clouds, um, the Cloud Corporation, uh, from Tim Donnelly and Alina Gregorian's um, Navigational Clouds. And then two novelists that I knew in New York were also writing about her hurricane hitting a major city in their novels. Ben Lerner wrote 1004 in 2014. Uh, 2014. Andrew Durbin wrote um, MacArthur Park in 2017. And, and both novels tell the story about a hurricane hitting a major city um, and leaving that kind of modern, again, triumphant city um, uh, no longer uh, walled off or, or um, unimpeded by, by nature. When I would go to galleries, museums, the armory show here in New York Freeze, I, I noticed that we were telling an entirely different kind of story to one another. It was, in fact, one of our oldest kind of stories. It was, it was not, though, a personal narrative or even a drama about nature, about um, some kind of... Um, uh, natural catastrophe. It was an epic about a natural disaster, and it was taking place on a planetary scale. And then I think it was an unseasonably warm day in the winter of 2016, and I was on the way to New York Public Library um, with a friend. It was in the middle of winter. I think we were wearing t-shirts, um, and I started writing about the weather uh, in um, this very special room. So if you think about New York City, you know, many people know um, these buildings like the Empire State Building or um, the, the uh, Statue of Liberty. Um, but one of the cherished spaces in the city is actually a library um, that is on the corner of 42nd Street and Fifth Avenue. Um, and and it's, a, it's a reading room, it's a large reading room, about the half of the length of, um, of a city block, maybe the length of a football field. And Above um, is this incredible uh, ceiling fresco painting of um, clouds. And so you can imagine other uh, you know, depictions of clouds only in this depiction, 
um, in Renaissance painting, for instance, in this depiction, there are no human figures. Um, so I just started writing about the weather and I started writing about it um, as something new um, that was happening to us in a new way that was on everybody's minds. And in the book, I went on to um, catalog uh, a series of works of art over the last 10 years about the weather. And I used that as a basis to talk about um, a new kind of story or narrative or thinking that we're doing as a result of this new era of climate change. Um, a lot of the points that you mentioned actually still ring through all uh, unusual weather conditions. But anyway, let's first come up with a definition for the term Anthropocene. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this term. That um, I myself first came across the word, I guess, in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Before that, I'd never heard of it. And it was only when I'm doing when I was doing my research, but I realized that more and more we see this um, term. You know, I, I, we hear this term on television, radio. We see it in newspapers. I guess in the Guardian, almost every month, there there is an article which at least makes a reference to Anthropocene, and there are a lot of books about that as well. But can you tell us what Anthropocene means and how? And one thing I really like about this is that it's an entanglement between the geological time and also human history. So that would be uh, great if you could talk about this. Absolutely, it is. Um, one thing I wanna be clear about is that in the book, the Anthropocene is a contested term. I don't wanna adopt it, I try to use it because as you say, it is so um, uh, present in our newspapers and our conversations. And I guess the question then is how did that come to be? So. Very simply, um, you know, as we've mentioned, all of these um, new things are happening uh, across our planet. Uh, we're seeing um, shifts in temperature, ocean temperature. Uh, we're seeing uh, fires on a new scale, uh, droughts on a new scale, jet stream patterns that are different, uh, glaciers melting, but refugees, I mean, and so on and so forth, right? And I, even though um, there had been some effort to try to talk about this or narrate what is happening, you know, like everything, everywhere, all at once, right? The people who um, actually told a very comprehensive story, um, the first people to put that in, in the way it really began to um, take hold in the humanities, but also in our culture uh, more largely, were geologists. Geologists began in 2000, uh, Paul Crutzen introduced this term um, to describe that the, our planet had entered into a new period of history that was um, different as a result of human activity. So Anthropocene, right, a, a scene or a segment of geological time uh, defined by Anthropos uh, or Anthropoi, uh, human beings. Just if I could just like go back just to, to a little bit of geological he history here. Yeah. Um, the last uh, segment of geological time was supposedly called a Holocene. And that's the moment uh, around 11,500 years ago where the earth uh, departs from uh, an ice age, its last ice age, and departs from a really unstable temperature pattern where the temperature is going up and down uh, erratically. And if you look at our charts of the um, air surface temperature, you can see this in our um, ice core data, what you'll see is that we entered into a relatively stable and relatively mild climate period. All of our, um, uh, you know, most of our, our stories, our histories are, um, sorry, I'll, I'll go back and um, uh, 
say it this way. Um, so after um, that takes place, we see the agricultural revolution. Uh, we see a real flourishing of human life um, up to the point of, you know, in 1950, um, we grow as a species into 2 billion people. Um, we just surpassed 8 billion. And by the end of this century, we're projected to be somewhere between 11, 12, 13, you know, maybe even the highest amounts of 14 billion people, although now it's been a little bit reduced. Um, so what these geologists were describing were a new um, period, was a new period of, uh, of uh, an age or era in our planet where we'd start to see uh, a shift and a period of instability as a result of human activity. Um, uh, later, an Anthropocene working group was formed. Um, and I guess what's odd for us, you know, if, if we're thinking about um, the university system more broadly or popular culture, is how much ink was spilled in the humanities, the social sciences, newspapers about debating this term Anthropocene. Uh, I think everybody has weighed in. Geologists uh, uh, presented this story about the planet. And then historians weighed in, um, sociologists weighed in to try to tell the story from their perspective. Um, you know, philosophers weighed in uh, on how we describe um, this Anthropocene. How would we um, describe what has happened uh, historically? Why has this happened? What are the um, anthropogenetic uh, events or what are the moments when um, this began to happen sociologically? Um, and how do you, Contest system. You argue actually that we need a counter history for humans. So and and you also make the point that we need to correct the story of Anthropocene. What is this counter history that you discuss, and what did we get wrong about Anthropocene in the first place? So I think the and this has been broadly discussed is that the in, initial um, uh, issue or problem that many people had with the way that um, geologists described the Anthropocene was that geologists would describe it as the collective human force uh, of, of human beings as an entire species. So um, geologically, what is the collective geological force of human beings as a species? And there's no um, debating uh, that, you know, human beings as a population has surged uh, and um, when we see what the geologists call the great acceleration, we can see things like charts of um, greenhouse gases taking off uh, in 1950. And from that until now, when the population basically, um, you know, quadruples. I think what people um, began to question was this idea that Amitav Ghosh, for instance, says in The Great Derangement, where he says that every human being who has lived has played a part in this, um, in, in uh, in this problem, um, and that it is this problem of planetary climate change uh, of the Anthropocene is, is owed to human beings as a species. And what many people wanted to be, wanted us to be, take a closer look at, I guess, was um, what specific um, practices, uh, you know, accounted for um, this, uh, this Anthropocene? Or was it, um, you know, do we need to differentiate our human species, for instance, in the fact that uh, a rich person in a wealthy country contributes 1,000 times more greenhouse gases than, you know, a poor person from a poor country. So I'm trained as a philosopher, and one of the things that philosophers have been so concerned about is the fact that we have very different histories or accounts depending on who is telling the story. Nietzsche, for instance, will talk about how um, 
our values or German values um, throughout this certain period uh, are um, told from a very different perspective um, and redefined. So let me go back. Nietzsche, for instance, will talk about how German values and morality um, is told in very different ways, that story, depending on whether it's the upper classes telling the story or the lower classes telling the story. Uh, we see Foucault talking about the difference between those who are on the supposed side of reason and those who are supposedly on the side of madness. Um, Foucault's thesis, of course, was titled The History of Madness. He wanted to tell the other side of that story, um, the other side of history. And so what I began to see um, in this discussion of the Anthropocene um, uh, was um, you know, what Sylvia Winter, the Caribbean decolonial theorist will call um, a need to describe not just the anthropos or humans, but the human other, um, the inhuman. Uh, all those um, people who had been on the other side of this definition of human, uh, humanism, uh, Italian humanism, for instance, which emerges um, in uh, Renaissance thought, and that definition of human humans is, is, is told as a way to master nature. Um, it is um, you know, used, uh, as I point out in the book later on, uh, as um, a, a rationale or justification or metaphysics uh, for um, the uh, uh, colonization of modern day Dominican Republic and the Spanish court. Um, so I think more broadly, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that um, if we're going to give an account of the Anthropocene, uh, we have to give an a kind of account that um, you know begins to tell it uh, from a few different perspectives and differentiates it into the actual uh, uh, differentiated histories that we have. Um, uh, certainly, uh, those are differentiated or passed through questions of race, capital, gender. Uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, there is something in the book that I was really interested in. Um, you talk about this counter history, trying to put wordless wordlessness into public space again. What does that mean? What do you mean by wordlessness? And how does this counter history bring it back into the public space again? So um, let me get to the question of wordlessness maybe in a moment. Um, let me say a little bit about how in practice we might think about this counter history um, and then uh, and then move from there. I think what I'm really interested in in that chapter that you're you're talking about um, is the kind of history that we can do um, when we um, in, involve or include uh, the history of the planet. Uh, and especially CO2 or greenhouse gases. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the 19, uh, sorry, in the 1600s, for example, we see a decrease in CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. And we can date this decrease with ice core data from the same period. And so one wonders when they try to uh, look through the CO2 and uh, greenhouse gases caused by supposedly all humans, why in 1600 we see this dramatic decrease in CO2, uh, uh, you know, in the atmosphere of the planet. What what is actually archived? Um, well, scientists and social, uh, social scientists agree, uh, is the documentation of the genocide of the indigenous population in the Americas, which went from about 60 million to 6 million uh, from you know, the end of the 15th century into the 17th century. 
the reforestation of their land after European colonization caused for carbon sinks to emerge. And so, you know, what I'm interested in there in terms of a counter history is that we know the history that there is a, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue as I was taught as a kid. Um, and uh, we're told that there was this uh, Thanksgiving, that there, you know, was uh, some kind of um, friendship or peace or whatever. Um, but the CO2 deposits in the Earth's atmosphere, the reforestation of land um, after the genocide, it, it, it suggests that what actually happened, um, not suggests, it, it, it proves, it documents, it archives, um, that what actually happened was the genocide of the indigenous population. Um, so that's an example of a counter history that is departs from a normal sense of history that I was given, for instance, as a child, um, that many people um, learn you know, from a um, uh, in a, in a colo uh, colonial um, environment, settler colonial environment. I think what um, question of worldlessness that I'm really interested in is um, this uh, sense that um, what I guess the Anthropocene um, does is at a time when we have lost all sense of public things or um, political things. We're living in an age in many places of neoliberal capital where I'm supposed to be uh, very much an individual, not concerned with um, public things. Uh, climate change, the Anthropocene reintroduces uh, a sense of a world because um, it's happening to all of us as a public thing. It's, it's not happening to us as an individual. Um, so I can say more about that if you want, or maybe this phrase, you know, the end of the world, um, why it was that I started meditating on that. Yeah, yeah, that would be uh, good to know. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm interested in this phrase, a lot of people have used it, I think that there um, is a sense in which that phrase, the end of the world isn't in, in a lot of places. Um, it was in a lot of things that I was reading. Um, Anna Singh's Mushroom at the End of the World, Timothy Morton's work, artists, um, I was thinking about this artwork that I saw, how to see the earth before the end of the world and so on. So as a method, really what I was trying to do is take a phrase, the end of the world, that it seemed to be everywhere for me and what I was reading um, and began to um, maybe meditate on it or think about it having several different meanings at once. And when I started thinking about this, you can almost imagine maybe a, a translator who um, imagines different possible meanings of a phrase or uh, something they're trying to translate and they can't quite decide on what the actual meaning should be. Um, so sometimes I was thinking about this phrase and I thought, oh, this is really about the, the sixth extinction. Um, you know, the, at the end of the Holocene, the end of this period of flourishing um, and a relative stability of our planet. And, and so it's, it's, it's our responsibility to tell that, to narrate that, to tell that story um, about the end of this um, supposedly um, you know, relatively uh, mild, um, stable period on our planet. Um, at other times, um, I was trying to think a little bit more um, about, about contemporary capitalism and the fact that we're so defined by individualism and competition um, that uh, one philosopher, for instance, Hannah Arendt says that we are living not only in, in, a, in a state of loneliness, it calls our, our age of, uh, an era of mass loneliness, but also a state in which we really don't um, have any notion of a world, of a public thing. And um, we are worldless, uh, she says. Um, and I felt like climate change was intruding on that because it reintroduced the sense that um, um, 
you know, this is not happening to me as an individual. This is happening to all of us, um, almost like an epic. Um, sometimes I was trying to think about uh, a decolonial thought. Um, you may remember Amaya Cesar's famous uh, uh, line, we have to begin the end of the world. Um, I was also thinking in this sense about Du Bois. Um, du Bois writes this uh, speculative short story at the end of his book, Dark Water, um, right around the time when I was writing, like right around a, a century before us where he's writing in the midst of a, of a flu pandemic and also just after the racial violence of the Red Summer. And I was thinking about Du Bois because he also just begins to think about the end of the world. There's this, um, uh, there's this moment of um, comet sweeping past the earth. Um, it wipes everyone out. Uh, and Du Bois, and I think Cesare would agree with this later on, um, see this possibility of the end of the world in that sense as emancipat emancipatory um, for black and colonized um, people. They have, they have to end the world um, in that sense. Uh, no, in, in no sense um, am I under, uh, you know, the, the illusion that for, for so many people, the end of the world has already happened. Um, indigenous people will, will describe, um, sorry, I should say that in another way. Um, of course, we have to remember that for many people, the indigenous, et cetera, uh, the end of the world has already taken place as well. And so I began to uh, meditate on this phrase, the end of the world, in a polyvalent way in the book to rethink um, three questions uh, in the humanities against the, the specter of catastrophic climate change. Question of time or history, art and politics. Um, uh, those three questions of, of time, art and politics uh, go uh, carry throughout the book. Mm -hmm. uh the whole question of Anthropocene is also entangled with the idea of uh, power and resistance. So how should we approach this narrative and try to reperiodize history in terms of uh, power and resistance? So I think it's important to think about um, in these discussions when philosophers talk about history, that if we differentiate our accounts of history, then we talk about it not only in terms of power, so who's telling that um, you know, historical account and the position of power and what are they doing with it? Um, that's uh, Foucault's notion of discourse. And then the resistances um, to that discourse or that um, way of telling the story. And so one of the things I do in the book is I chronicle the debates um, over uh, the periodization of the Anthropocene and I add my own original contribution I, I trace a philosophical text on humanism that was written just a few years before Columbus arrived in the Americas. And specifically, I track how that text was used in the Royal Spanish court to justify the colonization of the Americas. In the text, um, it's by Pico della Mirandola. Uh, he describes that there is this um, wonderful, um, extraordinary uh, 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 being at the center midpoint of the world. Uh, it is, as he says, man. Um, and it has a duty and responsibility to order over the rest of the earth. Of course, Randola writes this um, in the 15th century uh, from, the mid, from the point of view of, of Europe. Um, and when it's taken up later um, by Juan Hidas de Sepulveda in a Spanish court, uh, in the 16th century. It's taken up in order to justify 
um, the colonization of modern day Dominican Republic, as I mentioned. What ends up happening is that the people living in um, what is now you know, modern day Dominican Republic, that um, uh, new things begin to, um, uh, ch changes begin to take, take root in the land. As colonization arrives, uh, a new relationship with the land entirely um, is, uh, is introduced. Uh, Malcolm Ferdinand, uh, a thinker that a lot of people are reading today, documents this um, in his book, um, um, Decolonial Ecology. Um, actually, I'm, I need to make sure I have that book title correct. <laughs> um, Malcolm Ferdinand has documented this, uh, in this new relationship to the land. Um, and to the people and the Americas in, in his book. So when we think about um, this project of resistance, I think it's not only just about telling the counter history of what happened in those places. Um, what, were, what were these um, practices with the land uh, before um, settler uh, colonists arrived? But also, um, you know, can we find within those um, stories of resistance uh, ways of resisting this Anthropocene um, anew. And um, that's one of the possibilities I think that counter histories do um, that's really interesting to me. Um, whereas master narratives don't suggest that we can find our way out of this, you know, that they, they suggest, you know, this is history, this is the way of the world. Counter histories talk about those sites of resistance um, to what has ha been happening. Uh, and those sites of resistance um, can introduce new ways of being um, uh, in the future. I think that's really an important um, project of, um, of, of, of resistance stories. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. There, there is another idea in the book that you discuss, white geology, which was introduced by Catherine Yusuf, if I'm not mistaken. So what is that idea of white geography and why do you think it's problematic? Yes, I, I do document in the first chapter um, a, a series of debates that took place around um, the periodization of the Anthropocene. And uh, one of the more widely read books uh, was Catherine Yusuf's, I think it came out in 2018 or 19, um, A Billion Black Anthropocenes or None. And Yusuf made the charge that up until now, we had been telling the story of um, planetary climate change of the Anthropocene of this new geological era purely from a white perspective, from the perspective of the global north, when we talked about what events um, or spikes, as geologists uh, uh, describe, uh, of CO2, what, what they might have been, uh, we describe it from the perspective of, um, you know, colonizers uh, of, of the wealthy, etc. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of the examples that um, uh, Catherine Yusuf uh, will, will um, you know, outline um, is this, uh, this era uh, around the middle of the 20th century um, where geologists will describe a great acceleration um, in uh, population. And one of the ways that they'll try to also date this um, moment 
uh, is by documenting um, the uh, atomic weapon. So remember for geologists, they have to document uh, what is in the land or what is in the strata of the earth. And they're saying that there is this um, you know, nuclear uh, uh, deposits in the soil that we can date. Is that a way in which we can describe, you know, if people were to come out, you know, come long, long, long uh, after us, after, after uh, uh, we were extinct, let's say, and they were to look at the strata in the earth, they might say, okay, well, this is a moment, you know, this, this moment in the, in the strata, we can say um, is a moment when, um, uh, when, uh, when this began. What Catherine Yusuf does is tell the other side of the story. So instead of what she calls a white geology, um, telling a counter history or a counter narrative or um, uh, a genealogy, uh, you might say. So she looks at the people um, who were very close um, to uh, those those nuclear weapons are being um, detonated. For instance, uh, uh, a lot of them were detonated around uh, in the in the uh, around the Marshall Islands. That was a major testing area, um, and they were detonated there precisely because um, the U.S. government did not consider the people living there, um, in her words, fully human. They were detonated as well uh, in the U.S., for instance, around um, reservations um, and around um, indigenous land uh, that had been, you know, declared indigenous um, uh, under certain treaties, supposed treaties. And those, you know, were detonated there precisely because they were these areas where um, there weren't uh, white people who lived. They were um, just indigenous populations. So... What she wants to do in all of these dates or moments um, uh, for us uh, when we're trying to date is tell the other side of that story. Instead of describing, for instance, Columbus's uh, voyage to the Americas and um, this expedition, that's the way geologists initially described it, the Columbian expedition, she describes it from the other perspective, um, what it was like um, to have genocide, uh, you know, what new land practices were introduced, um, how this eventually led to the white population taking off uh, and CO2 um, uh, uh, through, largely through um, you know, the, uh, coal, um, the fuel of British hegemony, um, beginning to increase and increase based on the white population. Um, so that's an example of how we might tell a geological story differently, depending on whether um, we were telling it from a a, a white perspective or not now let's talk about uh art a little what what sorts of of or forms of art are being created in response to anthropocene what are the aesthetic practices that tell us that there's this new approach to art in response to anthropocene i'm so glad you asked this question because i think this is one of the more exciting um things that is happening right now um and is is, is very new um if you think about one of the problems of climate change it's it's relatively new right and scientists have not um are not necessarily uh the best narrators um but it's also very very challenging for scientists to tell the entire story of everything happening all at once you have to have the atmospheric chemists tell one portion of it you have to have people who are working on ocean currents tell another another portion of it and this became the problem for many people so one of the things that um, ways that that tried to be overcome was through the development of earth system science in 1983, a science that would tell the whole system of the earth, you know, a story about it. But that still, for some reason, hasn't 
raise consciousness um, in the public in a way that, for instance, a movie might that or, uh, you know, a, a book might um, that you, you happen to read um, where there's a curator, uh, character or narrator um, that you can relate to. So one of the things that I think is really important um, to, to chronicle, which I do in the book, um, is to tell the story that um, we are telling ourselves about climate change. And I look at works of art, literature, films over the last decade. Um, so I think in this sense, in other words, art has this outsized role to play in terms of us not only um, you know, knowing the facts, we, we know that CO2s are increasing, we know that the human population is um, you know, going up uh, stratospherically, but also to, to tell a story um, about it that somehow moves us or allows us to, as Latour says, face up to it. Mm. And um, the, the, the Anthropocene also highlights a question of democracy. You Earlier you talked about how we humans don't have an equal share in creating this, the Anthropocene, talking about global north, global south. So how does um, Anthropocene highlight this question of democracy and what is meant by the idea of, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, you correct me if I'm wrong, zoocracy, am I right? Uh, yes, I, actually, Morteza, I was wondering if we could talk um, about the aesthetic practices yeah, in yeah, the Anthropocene. Sure. Yeah, sorry, um, I, 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 the, I think I interrupted right? you. <laughs> no, no, no. I thought I thought um, I liked that question, and it allowed me to talk about um, sure. Yeah, let's talk about. I, I think you discussed five practice, aesthetic practices. So yeah, we'll I'll pose that question later. So can you go ahead, please. Yeah. Uh, with the question of the democracy. Uh, no, the five aesthetic practices oh, okay, that you great. were going to talk about. Great, thank you. What I try to do in the book is talk about um, some different uh, maybe traits or characteristics of, of the broader uh, narrative or story that we're telling in our art, films, et cetera, about climate change to one another. I think one of the first things I noticed when I was looking at works of art over the last decade, which I chronicle in the book, um, that had to do with, with climate um, was this sense of catastrophe. Um, and I think what was so interesting to me about this is that it, it wasn't a sense of personal catastrophe. It wasn't my death, in other words. It was um, more and more a catastrophe for me, my friends, my city, uh, even all of us all at once. Um, and I look at different films even uh, that do this, but I look at uh, a series of, of works of art um, that described this kind of catastrophe happening to all of us all at once. It was happening, um, uh, I think, in and largely through a depiction of nature, but very different from the way that we had described um, nature, uh, for instance, in our romantic accounts, whether it be in Buddhism or in land art um, or, or in um, uh, the romantic period uh, of, of France, Germany, uh, England. There's a, there's a kind of uh, relationship with nature um, that is discussed there, which is not at all what I was seeing in very contemporary works of art. So what I was seeing was a kind of nature that was coming up against us um, as a kind of monstrosity, but a nature that was contaminated almost by the force or the, the activity of human beings. Um, so I see this in different works of art that I document um, but it'll be um, clouds, for instance, that carry nuclear radiation. 
a contaminated nature that is blowing across and and then and then there's a a, a play that I documented where whether the um, protagonist in the play will survive is 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 owed to the weather because it will either blow that radioactive wind into the the people in the story or it will the weather will blow it away from them. Now this kind of a story is very very different. Um, from the kind of stories that I think we were telling each other, uh, you know, two decades ago, even a decade ago. Um, when um, you may know Leotard's book, um, The Postmodern Condition, and Postmodern, uh, Postmodern Condition was supposed to announce, you know, this, this moment where human beings no longer had, um, they had turned away from grand narratives. They had no interest in meta narrative. It was not possible to tell one nor did we, we, do we tell them to each other. Um, or should we? Uh, Leotard mentions his concern about totalitarian narratives being part of the story. What I was seeing was um, the very people who had most resisted grand narratives, so decolonial philosophers, um, uh, et cetera, now telling a story about the planetary, a planetary epic. So some very, very grand narrative. Um, I was seeing... Um, you know, indigenous artists describe something um, that was on the scale of a universal epic. And I was very curious about that and how they were telling that story. And I was interested in who was telling a story that was supposedly happening to all of us all at once. If, if it was, um, you know, a white person in a wealthy country making a global uh, claim of globalism, uh, that's a little bit different, right? Than if it was uh, someone who was, um, in a Latin American country had an indigenous background um, describing uh, something that was uh, you know, um, a history of human beings. Uh, and, and that interested me very much. So I think there was, a, a, there is a different kind of story and a different kind of art that's being made. Um, it is collectivizing us. I think as we, the more and more we tell this story, um, the more and more we're telling a story about all of us all at once. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is to suggest that um, we are becoming more collective as a result of climate change, but also the story we're telling about it, um, we're, 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 we're telling it, we're describing it and our consciousness is growing, consciousness is growing about it. Um, it's happening to all of us all at once. Is there a way to harness this new sense of collectivity or this new, what Deepesh Chakrabarti calls this shared sense of catastrophe? Um, is there a way to harness that and direct it towards something very good, a new political project that would have, um, you know, something something good, uh, less violent, much more egalitarian, um, much more equal um, in its in its scope or view? And uh, and what about the question of democracy that I posed earlier? So how does Anthropocene highlight that? Well, I think what is happening right now in many places is the opposite of democracy. Technocratic governments are subsidizing fossil fuels, often for private reasons or private profit, to the tune of about 6 to 7% GDP globally. And the public is often not aware of this, um, nor does it support this um, subsidization of fossil fuels when asked. In the U.S., we spend more on fossil subsidies each year than we do on, the defense, on defense spending. Um, in fact, we spend more on fossil fuel subsidies um, than, I, we spend 10 times more on fossil fuel subsidies, I just looked at this uh, number, uh, than we do on education. So what I think is happening 
is um, a certain subsidization um, of fossil fuels at the expense of the public, often without um, their knowing. And it's within this context that I introduce um, you know, a, a different way to think about this, uh, which is a democracy that has to be won, a more radical democracy that Plato describes as oligarchy's enemy. Um, and it's uh, much, much more um, driven by uh, public consensus and public good. Um, and then I extend it into this notion um, of uh, a neologism that I, I coined from two different Greek words um, called zoocracy. Um, so it's a, a, a kind of democracy that would be extended uh, to life itself, a democracy of all the living. Uh, and Anthropocene, how, how can it help us out of or show us a way, a different way or an alternative to new liberalism's wordlessness to, towards a more radical form of democracy? How do you see this happening? Well, I appreciate that question very much. Uh, this is the part of the book that, um, to my surprise, I think many friends, uh, colleagues, readers of the book found to be the most original and the most exciting. Um, when I would share you know, the book with them, they would say, this idea that the Anthropocene breaks us out of our era of neoliberalism, of contemporary capitalism, of worldlessness, um, you show how that's happening, whether we realize it or not. So let me just begin by describing neoliberalism, what it is. This is a word that we often use, um, but we often use it incorrectly. Um, the first initial study on this um, that was done in philosophy was Foucault's uh, 1978-79 lecture series on this term neoliberalism. It's published as the birth of biopolitics. And what Foucault says is that neoliberalism is different from 18th and 19th century laissez-faire capitalism or liberalism primarily because it is state-supported capitalism. Whereas laissez-faire liberalism had been um, a, a strict separation uh, in his words, like laissez-faire, right? Uh, let the um, people in private industry do their thing and let the people in government handle their thing. Um, neoliberalism is a state-supported capitalism where the government intervenes in capitalism for private industry, for private industry's sake. So it's a new kind of relationship. And what we tend to, you know, what we tend to overlook in neoliberalism studies today is the fact that the thing that we are supporting in this era of capitalism more than anything else is fossil fuels. We are supporting it at six to 7% GDP around the globe, um, China being the leader, and then the US, uh, Russia, and um, Europe. So the state supporting, um, you know, these kinds of, uh, this new kind, uh, this fossil uh, capitalism or energy. I think um, what the book tries to show is that whether we realize it or not, climate change has broken us out of the story of neoliberalism. Um, Foucault will go on to say in The Birth of Biopolitics that what actually subtends this, you know, neoliberal order in our government is a way of life that says that um, all of us are economic beings. We are all individuals. There's nothing public. Um, so there's no um, political life as Aristotle described. There's no um, uh, you know, homo politicus. Um, there is just uh, this individualistic, competitive, and Foucault says self-entrepreneurial subject. Um, but what climate change does is it breaks us out of the story. It, it, it says that um, 
you know, for starters, uh, we're in a, a new shared sense of history, a planetary history that's happening. You know, when the wildfires from Colombia, uh, from um, Canada rather, blow smoke um, down into the city as they did, all of us are struggling to breathe here um, at once. You know, we, we all can't go outside. It's not happening to me as an individual. Um, when the smoke blocks the sun for days, then right, I'm, it's happening to all of us uh, all together. I'm not experiencing this just as an individual. When this begin, these events begin to happen all over the world and also to happen to non-human non, uh, beings, living things, uh, then we realize that we really are um, telling a story that is quite different um, from the narrative of neoliberalism that's held sway uh, for uh, and in many ways still holds sway, um, but is changing whether we realize or not um, uh, for the last four decades. Uh, is, uh, before we end this interview, just curious to know if there is any other book uh, or project you're currently working on? Uh, so I'm currently working on two uh, subsequent books um, yeah, that will follow this one. Um, the first is called How to Perform a Democracy. And it's about the invention of radical democracy. And the second book is called How to Assemble with All the Living. Uh, and it's about um, the, the uh, way of thinking in this last chapter that as in the How to Live at the End of the World book, um, is it possible to assemble uh, with, um, with the planet? Uh, this is kind of one of the things I argue in the book throughout is that the way to deal with this is that we have to win the battle of democracy we have, to, we have to change the political system as it is currently. Um, and then that has to be transformed into something more than democracy, more than a rule of the people, to use the, the Greek translation. It has to be transitioned into um, a, a rule for all the living. Um, it has to rethink itself in terms of a, a politics, um, not just for, for uh, a people or human beings, um, but one for, for all the living. And that's the sense I'm trying to gather to gather, uh, get at with um, how to assemble with all the living. Uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Dr. Travis Hallway, for uh, taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. Thank you very much, Morteza. I enjoyed it.